Let me go ahead and pray right now. Father, we uh, do pray just for safety, for people still traveling this morning. Uh, we pray for those who won't be able to make it, that you would uh, encourage them, um, that you would um, help them even as they're not able to be with us. Lord, we pray for this morning, for the people that are here, that they would be encouraged. Um, pray for strength, O oh Lord God. Pray for just the blessing of fellowship, um, and Lord, that we would honor, honor your name. We thank you, and we praise you for this morning in your name. Amen. All right, so that handout's hopefully still going around. Uh, we will refer back to that um, by way of review and by way of going forward. Um, so remember, we're talking about holiness and kind of the, the goal. Uh, the, someone asked me, I think it was, I think it was Leo last night that asked me, uh, why, why are we, what made you think about doing God's holiness? And really, it's that, that concept, that theme verse in First Peter. Let me just go ahead and read that again, First Peter 1.14. And following, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And what we want to talk about, we've been talking about uh, the gospel, we've talked about evangelism, we've talked about discipleship, we want to talk about how do you grow as a Christian, how do you grow in holiness. Uh, typically, we think, use the term progressive sanctification to talk about that. Um, so, really, the, the track, though, that Peter lays out for us is, if we want to talk about our holiness, we need to talk about God's holiness. And if we're going to talk about God's holiness, really, that leads us back to the Old Testament and even Leviticus, right? He quotes from Leviticus there. Um, that, that's uh, where Peter's quoting from. So, that's where we've been spending our time in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll eventually work our way to the New, but we need to know the backdrop of what, how does the Bible conceive of holiness before we get to the New Testament. Um, and so we've been talking about the concept of holiness. Uh, we did that the first two weeks, and that's where I've got your handout. I thought it might, you guys might like having the long, wordy definition on your handout so you can refer to it. Uh, but the way we define holiness is this. Holiness is uncommonness in relation to God or people, places, or things. With reference to God, it describes his utter uncommonness and incomparability because of who he is as God. With reference to people, places, or things, holiness indicates that God has declared the person, place, or thing as uncommon and belonging to himself for his own use. The closer the person, place, or thing is to God's naked presence, the more holy or uncommon must be the person, place, or thing. And we've said this is related to the temple and the tabernacle, and we're going to keep building on that because it really gives us a nice spatial idea of holiness, right? Uh, the closer you get to the holy of holies, uh, the more uncommon uh, things kind of have to be because the more uncommon, right, is God's presence. It's utterly uncommon. And then last week we talked about the idea, well, wait a minute, we, we, we have this concept of glory too, and often uh, there's a connection. There's a connection between God's glory and his holiness. And so that's what we talked about last week, what is glory, and we walk through some passages in Exodus, but basically God's glory is this. God's glory is the weight. Glory has this fundamental idea as weight. God's glory is the weight of his intrinsic being or the manifestation of that weight. So you can have intrinsic glory or extrinsic glory. Intrinsic glory is like, this is the value of something. Uh, it's almost like if you were to think of it in terms of a physics idea, it'd be mass right? Um, be the idea of mass, the substance of what something is, right? Um, and it has weight to it. Um, and then 
but there's also an ec- extrinsic glory, a manifestation, a display of that weight. Uh, and so scripture kind of uses them both times. Uh, sometimes it uses glory to refer to who God is in and of himself. That's intrinsic. But then often we see uh, God's glory manifested. It's external, so it's extrinsic as well. It's manifested. And then we also talked about kind of um, uh, that when we talk about glorifying God, what does that mean? To glorify God is to reflect to him some measure of the weight of honor that is proper to his being, right? So we think of glory as light. The manifested glory is those beams of light. God has designed us from the beginning as, as human beings to be mirrors to reflect back those beams to him in praise. Uh, we would call that worship, right? That's another word for worship. To glorify God is to reflect to him some measure of the weight of honor that is proper to his being. And then the question is, what's the relationship to holiness? And I argued that it's actually the reverse of the way we normally think about it. If God's glory is, it's, he's got an intrinsic glory, it's reflecting who he is in all his attributes as God, then God is holy, he's uncommon, he's incomparable because of his glory, because of his intrinsic weight. Or another way to think about it, in relation to people, places, and things, uh, God causes things to be holy by the presence of his glory. Exodus 29, 43, God talks about the tabernacle, and he says, I'm going to sanctify it, bring it into the realm of things that belong to me and that are for my purpose by my glory. You can even think about Mount Sinai, where we talked about this. Uh, the top of Mount Sinai, God's glory depends on it like a consuming fire, and therefore, because of that, the top of the mountain becomes set apart. It becomes uncommon, right? Only Moses can go up there. Only the priests and the elders can go up midway up the mountain. And even back earlier in Exodus, you can think of Exodus 3.5, Moses sees the consuming fire in the burning bush. That's a manifestation of God's glory, and the ground is holy. It's set apart for God's use and for meeting with people because his glory is there, right? Um, so in a sense, uh, God's glory is prior logically to something being called holy. That's the way I would argue it anyway. So um, any questions so far before we then talk, um, we go forward in this project of talking about holiness? Okay, that brings us up to speed. Now, here's the big question for today. We've got these concepts in place. What is the narrative of holiness and becoming holy look like through the scriptures? In other words, how does this idea progress? We've said that holiness is related to this concept of God's uh, temple, his tabernacle, uh, and really that concept goes throughout all of the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, I've done this uh, a couple times in uh, sermons, just kind of walking you through in a basic broad way. Uh, here's, here's God's temple concept through scriptures. Well, since holiness is integrally related to that, that temple concept, that sanctuary concept, that really kind of helps us answer this big question. What's the narrative of holiness and becoming holy look like through scriptures? If we want to answer that, then we have to answer it by looking at how does what is God's sanctuary? What is his meeting place with people, his holy place in meeting with people? What's that look like through scriptures? Okay, so that's where we're going to go today. That's why there's all these cool diagrams. I like pictures. So uh, this is going to be picture story time today. So, um, so uh, you'll, you will notice on your handout, 
uh, we've got this little cool diagram with all these little mountains and things. Um, and really, if you want to start talking about the sanctuary, you guys know we go back to Eden, right? We go back to the beginning. We go back to creation because um, when God creates everything in six days, and then what happens on the seventh day? He rests. What else? He calls it holy, which is really the funda this fundamental idea of the backdrop of the Sabbath in Scripture. It's the idea of rest. And rest isn't just, oh, I'm stopping from activity. It's this idea of peace, well-being, um, man dwelling with God and enjoying and basking in God's presence. So you got the six days where everything's created, and then, but we move into really what we could call the uh, the seventh day, which God sets, he, he sets it apart. Uh, he calls it uncommon. He calls it holy. It's for his use. Uh, and really, in doing so, he set aside what we would call sacred time. Sacred time and sacred space for uh, man to meet with God and to bask and enjoy his presence. Uh, that's really kind of what you see in those first uh Chapter, first chapter or so in Genesis. But uh, also you'll remember that um, in Genesis 2, you can turn there if you want, or I can just point you there, but uh, Genesis 2, after the Sabbath, and even dipping back into Genesis 1, Adam, is, Adam and Eve are given a stewardship rule over, over creation but it's not just that they're kings, they're also priests. And you really see that in 2.15, Genesis 2.15. Um, someone just go ahead and read Genesis 2.15. Sword drill, who's going to get there first? Genesis 2.15. Good. So, uh, there's Eden, there's the Garden of Eden, and then there's the world. Three levels. Um, man is put into the Garden of Eden, which will form the basis for talking about the Holy of Holies later. But this word of, uh, he puts the man in the Garden of Eden, to work it and to keep it. Those words, work and keep, they're normally used together of the tabernacle. Okay, so this is priestly function. Um, you can think of it like this. God created everything, and everything's good, but it's, in a sense, untamed, not in a bad way, but uh, God makes gives Adam, as a priest, this kind of goal of extending this realm of holiness, of meeting with God, and of ordering creation, uh, extending the garden, really, out into the world. And it kind of creates for us this picture that actually shows up again and again and again through Scripture. If you think about before creation, the waters are covering the earth, and then the creation comes out of that, and then there's a priest that comes out of that, right? Uh, so that's that first little picture there. You can kind of see it. You've got these waters, um, which often there's... This is from another author, so you don't have to pay attention necessarily to everything he has on there, but they're often associated with death, Waters are often associated with death or with chaos, uh, with even Sheol, which is kind of this Old Testament concept of death. Uh, but then we get this picture of a mountain. Uh, Eden was on a mountain. There's rivers flowing out of it. 
and you have Adam as a priest on top uh, of that mountain. Now, Genesis 3, what happens? The fall, and Adam and Eve get kicked out, right? What happens after they get kicked out? What's garden the garden? The cherubim. Cherubim's garden the garden with a sword, right? So he's there, um, or multiple of them, however many, right, are there guarding the garden. Uh, really, this is concept of exile. You move out, and that's one of the diagrams that you have on your, your handout there. I think if you flip it over, there's a cool little diagram that has this concept of uh, what is going on with the tabernacle is a callback to Eden, including the fall of moving away eastward, eastward, uh, that's a big theme in Genesis, away from the garden, away from God's presence, okay? Now, what's, what's, what's so bad about getting kicked out of the garden? They've been separated from God. Let's even be a little more specific. Why is that bad? Yeah, you don't get to commune with him like you used to, right? And really, what you see in the garden and really what we said about God and his glory, right? God is life in himself, right? So you're moving away from life, the fountain of life, towards death, right? Uh, you, the, the, the farther away you are from God, you are moving away from death. I mean, again, what was the promise, right? If the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, did they physically die that day? No, but they entered a state of death, right? In which will ultimately end up in physical death. You moved away from God's presence into death, right? Uh, and so you've got this idea of exile, this idea of death. But then what's interesting, Genesis 4, and this you can kind of see this in your little diagram, uh, Cain builds a city, and that's actually fairly significant. Uh, because what you see in scriptures, cities are very significant in the scriptures. Um, but what you seems like, even there's hints of it, with Cain building a city, he's trying to make a name for himself uh, through his son. Uh, essentially, what he's trying to do, he's trying to set up a, a, a rival Eden, a rival way of getting to God. Now, that may not be as... There's just inklings, kind of, with Cain's city, right? It's not very explicit. But then things go on, we get, what, the flood... Right? So this is kind of the next part of your, your diagram, right? So we go back. It, really, the flood is presented as a decreation. It really is. A lot of the language that's used in the flood is a callback to the early chapters of Genesis. So you've got the decreation where the waters cover everything again, right? And then creation, the mountains, in a sense, rise up. I mean, the water is lowering, but the, 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 the mountains come up out of that. You've got a new creation. You've got an ark that carried a people safely through the waters of judgment uh, and brought them on top of a mountain, Mount Ararat, and Noah is given Adam's mandate, right? So he is presented in an Adamic light as a priest and a king to do the exact same thing with modifications in a fallen world uh, for what Adam was doing. Then what happens, right? Noah sins, his sons sin, we've got a descent uh, and we've got a real problem with the Tower of Babel, which is, again, that city concept where you're trying to set up a rival, uh, a rival way of reaching God, right? A rival way of trying to make a name for yourself rather than making a name for God and drawing near to God. You're trying to draw near to God on your own terms, um, which is really a repeat of this exact same pattern. 
Now, the author that I was reading, he kind of does the same thing with Abraham, and he kind of likens uh, Ur, as, which is way east. It's where Babylon is, uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, right? Uh, and there is there's something to that, right? There's no waters necessarily involved this time, but the idea of Abraham being called out, uh, he goes into the promised land. And what is he always doing in the promised land when he's in the promised land? He's always building. He's always building altars, right? He's always building altars because God has even, from the beginning, you see it even as early as Genesis 4, right? Cain and Abel are sacrificing. He's given this idea of sacrifice to approach God's presence, right? So Abraham gets called into the promised land, uh, which kind of, um, and the kind of the culmination of that is the sacrifice of Isaac, which will eventually be where the temple is built in the exact same spot that he's going to sacrifice Isaac. Um, and he, Abraham is really presented as, again, God's kind of priest king. He's advancing God's mission in the world. So it's a kind of a recapitulation. Uh, I don't know so much about the waters thing, but he is being called out of um, Ur in that sense. He's being called out of death. He's moving westward towards life is kind of the idea, okay? You guys with me so far? Is this making sense? I'm just, now this is very broad, right? But it's kind of story um, to help us understand as we, we're kind of, we're going to come back to Leviticus, kind of the heart of understanding God's holiness in a lot of ways, uh, but you need to understand the narrative flow. Actually, this will help you if you're going to do the reading plan with us this year. This will help you a lot because then clue into these things. Be looking for these things um, as you read through that reading plan. It'll help you get through Leviticus too, right? Uh, Eden sent me a little meme and it had like this bus on the railroad tracks and it's like my reading plan and then there's this train coming and the train's labeled Leviticus, right? And it's like (laughs) kind of how we feel, but this will help you with it. It will. So, um, it was really funny. You can ask Eden to show you that later. So, um, okay. Any questions up to this point? Which is kind of leads us into that next stage of the story, right? Because what happens at the end of Genesis? Israel's in Egypt, which Egypt is at least, uh, and I think there's something to this, Egypt is strongly associated with death um, in a lot of ways, just even their, their cult and their gods and things like that. But what you see is God rescues his people from death. He brings them through the waters of judgment in the Red Sea. Uh, and brings them out to Mount Sinai, where Moses is functioning as a high priest, and uh, Israel's to be this priestly people, uh, but they've been brought through these waters of judgment uh, to advance God's plan and program, right? Uh, Which really uh, leads us even into, well, and, and going back to the Feast of Booths, right? Feast of Booths is to celebrate the Exodus, right? It's to celebrate this idea that God led us through the wilderness and brought him us to himself. He rescued us. He rescued us through the waters of judgment to bring us to himself. All of this is about drawing near to God's presence because God's presence is the fountain of life. We, Again, I've said this multiple times. It's the good of the good news. What is the good of the good news? It's God himself. It's God himself dwelling in his presence. That's what mankind was always designed to be, to dwell with him, to bask in the glory of his presence, to enjoy him. Um, and so we're trying to get back there. Really, 
We're not trying to get, I mean, in a sense we are, but God is the one who moves us forward to drawing us back to himself. Now, we saw this last week, Mount Sinai, we get all these instructions about the tabernacle, and you're reading through Exodus. Maybe you get killed in your reading plan in Exodus, right? Because the tabernacle, all these little niggly details, and you're like, why is this? Because it's about taking Sinai mobile, right? It's about taking Sinai mobile with God's people, which is that next picture you get there, right? Uh, You've got all these washings, especially for the high priest. The high priest has to go through a full body washing when he gets ordained as high priest. That shows up in Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, But why? Because it's picturing going through the waters of God's judgment and salvation uh, and then to be used by him as a high priest. Um, And the, the tabernacle mimics Sinai, right? You've got the outer court, level one, holy place, level two, holy of holies, right? Uh, level three, which, uh, again, you can access the outer court, even uh, the common people can access the outer court, the holy place, only the priests get to go into, and the holy of holies, only the high priest gets to go into, right? That, those gradations of holiness, because you're getting close to God, closer to God's glory and his presence, his intrinsic weight flowing out of that, okay? So that's kind of the narrative, so to speak, leading us into Leviticus, which is where we want to camp a little bit more, okay? Uh, Questions on the narrative flow. Does this make sense? Uh, It's pretty broad brushstroke, but it helps make a lot of sense of what's going on, even in the Pentateuch, the first five books as a whole. It's really exciting and really thrilling uh, once you understand it in that way, but any questions? Okay, Um, so now we get into... Uh, Leviticus, and there's certain, someone go ahead and turn to the end of Exodus, and uh, read for me, please. Oh, oh, one other thing, what is the, so God establishes in Exodus the, the Mosaic Covenant, every covenant has a sign, what is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant? You get a gold star if you get this one. the sabbath yeah it's the sabbath so yeah so circumcision is like this covenant sign for abrahamic covenant and then you've got um noe covenant you've got the rainbow and then the adamic covenant i would argue for marriage being this covenant uh the sign for that um it's not explicit but uh but but the Exodus, the, uh, for the Mosaic Covenant, it's the Sabbath. Exodus 31, even in the Ten Commandments, the Sabbath is highlighted. Why is the Sabbath such a big deal? Because it's sacred time connected with ultimately what's going to be sacred space with meeting with God in his presence. And we're going to actually see that in Leviticus, okay? Um, so, uh, but at the end of uh, Exodus, we get the tabernacle built. What happens at, right after the tabernacle's built? What happens? Glory of the Lord descends. Let's go ahead and read about that. Exodus 40, 34 through 38. Someone go ahead and read that for us, please.
Okay, big deal, right? This is great because uh, God's glory is dwelling with his people. This is the big promise of even the Abrahamic covenant, right? But this is what humanity needs uh, to dwell in God's presence. God has promised that, and we see an initial fulfillment of that. God's glory, his intrinsic worth, is dwelling in this tabernacle, this thing that is holy, that he has set apart for his own purpose, for people to meet with him. God's glory fills the tabernacle, which is good news. Um, Because now, God's glory is dwelling with his people. They can approach him. Except for, what's the problem? We kind of pointed this out last week. There's a problem. Moses can't go in, right? Uh, it's like, wait a minute. Moses was able to go up to the top of Mount Sinai, but he can't go into the tabernacle, right? Uh, this is a problem. So it's a problem which leads us right into Leviticus, right? Uh, this, there's a narrative flow that leads us right into Leviticus. So if you try to lead, read the Leviticus without understanding the backstory, you're going to feel like, uh, I don't get it, um, right? But if you understand the flow then it makes a little bit more sense. What happens um, the first seven-ish chapters of Leviticus? What do you run into first in Leviticus? And you can kind of even turn there and just kind of scan. Um, what, do you, what, what are the first seven chapters talking about? Offerings. A variety of types of offerings. Each one has their own particular function and portrayal. But regardless, all of them together, we're talking about offerings, okay? Now, uh, what happens, again, you can just kind of skim, chapter 8. What happens in chapter 8 of Leviticus? Just kind of skim what's uh, being said there. Or you can even look at the section heading in your Bible. It'll probably give you a good idea. Yes, so this has been already been talked about in Exodus, but we've got sacrifices and we got the mediators. So you're, what's happening in Leviticus 1 through 7 and chapter 8, you're bringing, it's not only for ongoing uh, sacrifices, it is, but it's bringing a system online. You can think about it like that, right? We've got this transfer of God's glory from Mount Sinai to the tabernacle, but we're bringing this system for approaching God and his glory and the fountain of life, we're bringing the system online through initial sacrifices, through consecration, which leads us right into Leviticus 9. Um, so everything in chapters 1 through 8, this is prep, or one, uh, preparatory for how do we approach God. And then notice, um, well, I'll start in verse 1 of uh, Leviticus 9. On the eighth day, so they were, they were being... Um, the, the priests were being consecrated for seven days. On the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel, and he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering without blemish and offer them before Yahweh. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, without blemish for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for a peace offering, to sacrifice before Yahweh, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Yahweh will appear to you. So basically all the sacrifices we just talked about in the previous seven, uh, uh, seven chapters, uh, we're putting them in the proper sequence and things that God wants, but for what purpose? For God to appear to you. God's glory to appear to the people. And we go on. And they brought... Uh, uh, 
uh, what Moses commanded in front of the tent of meeting, and all the congregation stood near and drew, uh, drew near and stood before the Lord. Moses said, this is the thing that Yahweh commanded you to do, that the glory of Yahweh may appear to you. That's the goal, right? We want to see God's glory, because God's glory is life-giving. It is life-giving. He is the fountain of life. And so in the rest of the chapter, they do these things. Um, and yeah, let's start in verse 22 of chapter 9. So they do these things, all these stipulations, they put them into action. And then 22... Then Aaron lifted up his hands towards the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of Yahweh appeared to all the people. And fire came out from Yahweh and consumed the burnt offerings and the pieces of fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And they're I'm sure it's a mixture of surprise and joy, right? That now God, what, God glory dwelling with his people, how do you approach God? That's the crisis that ends in the, um, Exodus. Um, and we get the answer to that in the sacrificial system in 1 through 7, the consecration of a priesthood, and then here's pushing the start button on the, the whole tabernacle system, right? And God's glory appears to the people, right, which is the goal, right? We want to be near God's glory. And they're shout, it's like consuming fire, consumes the sacrifice, kind of starts the fire in the altar um, in, in a sense, uh, but uh, it's, it's about seeing God's glory, right? And all of this has been preparation uh, to get near to God's glory, okay? Um, now, that's kind of the first movement in the book of Leviticus, uh, Okay. No, don't worry, we're still, ultimately we're still trying to understand holiness, right? But all of this is painting the backdrop and painting the story so that we understand better. Uh, any questions up to this point? Leviticus making a little more sense? A little bit? We've got sacrifices to approach God's presence. God's glory does appear um, in Leviticus 9. Okay. Now, someone go ahead and read 10, 1 through 3. We did this last week, but this is important, set over against what we just saw in chapter 9. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. Okay, so what do you see, especially in relation to what we just saw in chapter 9? Yeah, yeah so, so they're doing all these rituals and things. Right, and they kind of booted up the system, booted up, so to speak, right? And but then they do something 
um, that is wrong, right, that's strange, strange fire, um, unauthorized, maybe is a better way to put that, right? It's unauthorized. It's something God didn't command them to do, right? And there's a parallel with the, the, the sacrifice was just consumed in the end of chapter 9, right? It's the same sort of language. God's glory is manifested in a consuming fire, consumes the sacrifice, right? Well, Nadab and Abihu, uh, they, they do something wrong, and God's glory consumes them, right, in a similar sort of way. Uh, but in wrath, not in, in, in uh, rejoicing and blessing, right? So there's God's glory manifested in wrath. There's God's glory manifested in blessing. Uh, it's dangerous. It's that illustration of a nuclear reactor, right? You don't dare get close to the nuclear reactor without the proper procedures, right? And this is part of this. Now, the question is, what did they do? Um, and that is part of the tension. That is part of the tension in the narrative. Uh, some people say they were drunk because uh, if you skip down to verse 8, and Yahweh spoke to Aaron said, uh, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. Uh, it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that Yahweh has spoken to them by Moses. So there's some suggestion that potentially they were drunk in doing this. There's another connect, though, if you skip over to Leviticus 16, that is, I think, helpful in clarifying What's the crisis and what's going on? So Leviticus 16, which is really this high point of the whole of the book of Leviticus, the Day of Atonement, but notice how it starts. Leviticus 16. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before Yahweh and died. And Yahweh said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at, come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. And then it goes on to talk about the procedure for approaching God's holy place. And part of it involves censers. Remember Aaron and uh, remember Nadab and Abihu had censers with fire on them? And later in Leviticus 16, it talks about the very same thing. You need to approach in this way, and part of it is having your sensor, so there's a cloud, so that even when you go into the Holy of Holies, you can't actually see God's presence. Even then, you can't see God's presence, naked presence, right? So I think, given those connections, and I think the, uh, Moses is intentionally drawing a connection, I mean, it's very explicit, between Leviticus 10 and Leviticus 16, and it seems like Nadab and Abihu were trying to go into the Holy of Holies when they shouldn't have, Right? And the problem is they didn't do it the right way, at the right time. Uh, that's why this is strange or unauthorized fire. It could possibly also be that they're drunk, and that's why they decide to do this, right? I don't know. Possibly. But at the very least, um, they're doing something wrong to where they're not approaching the holy place in the right way at the right time. They're trying to penetrate deeper into God's presence without authorization, or at least without instruction of how do you do that, right? And this brings up, you can't approach God just any old way you want to think, right? Uh, because it's that nuclear reactor. You're going to die unless you listen to instructions very carefully about how to do that, right? Um, 
But what this also does, and this is where we're going to have to end for today, is it sets up the next movement in Leviticus. Leviticus 10.10 really sets, is paradigmatic. It, It sets up for the next movement in the book of Leviticus. And with that, we'll We'll pause and we'll pick it up next week. Leviticus 10.10 says this, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Four categories. Uh, And you've got a little chart on your handout uh, that kind of illustrates this, and we'll talk more about that next week. But here's the thing. Leviticus 11 through 15 talks about clean and unclean. And then Leviticus 17 through 20, basically the end of the book, talks about the holy and the common. So what happened with, think about the narrative movement, end of Exodus, hey, great, God's glory is dwelling in the tabernacle. Oh, but Moses can't go in. How do we get in? Sacrifices and the priesthood. Great, the system's booting up. We get to see God's glory. Oh, no, Nadab and Abihu, uh, approach God, try to get into the Holy of Holies in a wrong way. So what do we need to do? We need to know the difference between the clean and the unclean and also the holy and the common, which is really what the rest of Leviticus is about. First, it goes, it does it in reverse order. It talks about the clean and the unclean first, Leviticus 11 through 15, leading up to the Day of Atonement, and then it talks about the holy and the common, Leviticus 17 and on. That's the narrative framework in which we're talking about holiness. Again, the goal in all of this is how do we understand holiness? Because how we understand holiness in the Old Testament, all the New Testament authors are leaning on those concepts. So it's not that we're under this system. That's not at all what we're talking about. But it gives us a portrayal, a very visual portrayal of these things so that we can compare and contrast with what's going on in the New Testament. Okay? Uh, any lingering questions before we pray and transition towards um, the gathering? observation yeah yes right yeah that's a good observation and I think that's a numbers right so it's but but you've got that it's the same thing where God says with Nadab and Abihu those who are near me you're close by what is holiness it's uncommonness you've got to Dot your I's and cross your T's because God is utterly uncommon. And if we want to get close to his glory, we got to do it the right way. But And then he says also, I will be glorified, right? Um, we do all of this, and it's all about optics. How is God's glory manifested? Same thing happens with uh, the rock in, in Numbers where um, God tells Moses, do it this way, and he deviates just slightly. Uh, but God's like, you didn't, you didn't honor me as uncommon. You didn't un- honor me as holy right? Um, So you're not going to get to go into the promised land. Um, And it's the same reality. So yeah, good observation. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, and we'll tie back with the Sabbath and a lot of this as well. Yeah, it's good. Okay, uh, let's go ahead and pray. If you've got more questions or um, you're totally confused, you can let me know because um, that's helpful for me to know how to adjust in the future. But hopefully Leviticus makes a little more sense um, and it'll help you with your reading plan too. Father, we thank you so much for your grace. We do thank you that through the gospel, through Christ, we can draw near. And we can, and we look forward to seeing your glory. We thank you for the ways your glory is manifested even now. We thank you how it's even manifested in the gathering of your people, which is about to happen in 30 minutes. And Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that you would indeed be lifted high, that we would reflect back to you some measure of your worth and honor that is due your name. And I pray that we would reverence you, that we would approach you in the way that you've told us, and that we wouldn't be foolish or arrogant but be humble in approaching you. And we thank you that we can do that through your son, Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect high priest. And we give you great praise and honor. Thank you for this time this morning. Protect people as they're coming in. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.